Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word sometimes the question gets asked what is a Christian? Now, the, the question is understandable, I suppose, from someone that's, say, Islamic or Hindu or Jewish or some other religion. But there are people who claim to be Christian that ask that same question. Well, that's disappointing, but not at all surprising. It just confirms what I already know. People aren't being taught properly. You know, going to church is one of the most uplifting experiences a person can have. I've been in church services where I felt like I was walking on clouds afterward. But I think for the most part, people come out of church uninspired. Now, it doesn't have to entertain you. It doesn't even have to make you happy. But it should impact you every time you go to church. But I don't think that's happening anymore, by and large. Now, I personally blame, for the most part, a lack of proper and complete teaching. I blame the preacher. Even the word preacher has changed, or at least the meaning of it. Ask ten people what a preacher is, and you'll probably have nine different answers. And most of them will be something like, well, he's the guy or she's the lady that stands up and leads our church services. Well, there should be more to it than that. But it's coming down to it. Being a preacher has become little more than playing the role of ringmaster because most Sunday mornings now resemble a circus, going from one entertaining act to another. First, you'll have the music service, and let me ever so sarcastically say that the performances are no longer limited to the choir loft. It seems like members of the congregation are not satisfied with the choir getting all the attention. I mean, it's not uncommon now to see the most unusual routines being offered from the pews. And I'm not really sure most are listening to the same music I am. The song service now appears to be the best time to get noticed by your fellow 
congregation members. You know, it's funny. I remember when praise and worship was to glorify God. So that goes on for about 30 to 45 minutes, if you're lucky. And then it's followed by 10 minutes of announcements, all of which are already in the church bulletin or on the church website or the church Twitter feed. Then there's the committee reports. Those go on for five minutes or so, even though it seems very few care. And now a trend is emerging where churches are inviting people before the preaching begins to stand up and submit prayer requests. All the while, the so-called preacher is orchestrating this whole production, though it seems he's lost control. The entire thing has lost its true purpose. No wonder Christians don't know what a Christian is. No wonder people don't have the right answer to what is a preacher. Well, Paul knew. Paul was the example. Paul, outside of Jesus, was our best example of how God wants us to be. And it starts with his preaching. Tell me if, based on your experience, this is how you define preaching. Acts 17.1 Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Does that sound like your church service? Is anyone reasoning with you in church out of the Scriptures? Now that word reasoned in the King James translates the Greek word dialegomai. Dialegomai. The complete word study dictionary, a very common resource among preachers, says that dialegomai, dialegomai, means to say thoroughly. Is your preacher saying thoroughly with you out of the Scriptures? Is that what's happening in your Sunday services? That's all Paul cared about. How much of that are you getting? Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that, that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ, is the Anointed, is the Messiah, is the Son of God. The word that, how much does, how much of that do you get? Is your preacher taking time to address social issues or Christ? 
Is your preacher taking time begging you to give to the building fund, or is he saying thoroughly out of the scriptures? The word that Luke used there in Acts 17, you sound like you're upset today, John. I'm not. I love God so much that I want to see those he loves love him back. And the only way that's going to happen if, is if you're taught right. Ah, who are you? You're no preacher. Maybe not. The word that Luke used in Acts 17, verse 3, that the King James translates into the word preach, is the Greek word katangelo. Katangelo is actually the proper pronunciation. Katangelo. And katangelo means to proclaim or promulgate. Promulgate is not a word we use very often, but it means to make open, make known by open declaration. That's what promulgate means in English. Katangelo means promulgate or proclaim. But this isn't just some ordinary sort of standing on the corner spewing out words. This word katangelo is structured in such a way. And Luke knew it was structured in this way. Remember, we said this last week. Among all the writers of the New Testament, it is agreed among scholars that Luke was the most eloquent. He used the Greek language the best, even better than Paul. And so when Luke chose this word katangelo, Catangelo. He knew that it meant something more than just to proclaim something. It was a word that was used to describe a proclamation of official bearing. In other words, in ancient Greece, when a government administrator or official would come and lay down some important information, this is the word that would be used to describe that. This official proclamation was a con cantangelo, cantangelo, cantangelo. And Luke used that word to describe what we now, in English, call preaching. It was a word used for official proclamations, laying down as law facts. And that's how they delivered it. Paul was laying down proclamations of an official bearing that Jesus was the Christ. He was saying it with authority. Sometimes when I hear a preacher or a pastor or a minister or a priest speak, I wonder whether they, whether they 
themselves believe what they're saying. You know, that's what was said about Jesus, is that when he spoke, it wasn't as the scribes. He spoke with authority. Some argue that at some point in time, Paul knew Jesus in his lifetime, may have seen him a time or two. Some are almost sure he was at the crucifixion. Some argue Paul understood Jesus' style and adapted a lot of it. Luke is telling us that Paul, when he preached, he was proclaiming in a way that made people believe it was fact. It was official fact. And he said Jesus was the Christ. At no small risk to himself, might I add, to proclaim Christ, to proclaim Jesus as Christ carried a tremendous amount of risk. But he still did it nonetheless with official bearing. God, I wish I could teach like that. I wish that I could say it in a way that sounded so confident in what I'm saying, you'll say, it must be true, because he's so confident. I want to be like Paul. He wasn't only preaching Christ, proclaiming Christ. He was declaring Christ as a fact. He wasn't hesitant. He wasn't halting. He was confident. That's the standard by which you must judge your preachers, including me. Paul stands as the model for all of us. And by the way, preaching is not limited to those that stand behind a pulpit or a microphone. You're a preacher. J. Vernon McGee tells this story of when he was a young preacher in one of the small southern towns that he pastored churches in. And there happened to be one of his congregation members had a husband who was a drunk. Sorry, it was a son that was a drunk. The congregation member went to J. Vernon McGee and said, you've got to help me. J. Vernon McGee went into the man and he said he tore him up up one side and down another for being a drunk. Told him the stress he had put on his mother. Told him what a disgrace he was to the community. And all the while, the man took it. Told him he was a low-down sinner. That he was bound for hell. And then he said to him, and you know you're a preacher. Javerin McGee said he had to step back because the man balled up his fist turned towards that old preacher, was ready to knock his block off and said, don't you ever call me that. J. Vernon McGee said, that's what you are. That's what we all are. We all 
preach Christ. There's no such thing as a listener only. Paul is teaching you how you are to carry on the mission that Jesus gave us all. Paul picked it up and handed it to others, and that's now been handed to you. That's what today's lesson is. How did Paul accomplish what he came to accomplish, what he was called to do? We're trying to see what Paul was like so that we can be like that as well. Do you fit that model? Do I fit that model? Now, we all know that American history has a bit of an ugly side. I'm moving on from the preacher part. There's no denying that up to about 150 years ago in this country, humans owned other humans. From this country's beginning as a collection of colonies of various European empires through its establishment as a sovereign nation and all the way up into the mid-19th century, a period of about 300 years in all, there existed in the United States a certain class of people that had no rights. Now that really seems unimaginable to us today. But it's true. This classification, this classification of people who were hardly considered people, had no more rights than any of their owner's other property. The furniture had no rights, the dinnerware had no rights, the cattle had no rights, and the slaves, all of them Africans, had no rights. Now, of course, we don't need to go into too much detail there because it's not, American history is not our topic today. And also we're all, whether we admit it or not, sadly aware of the facts. Now, for most of human history, the institution of slavery was really quite common. Unfortunately, the United States has the shameful distinction of being one of the last governments on earth to remove that status from our law books. We were one of the last countries to legally allow the will of one person to be lost in the will of another. That's what slavery is. It's the absence of Listen to me, the absence of a personal will. It's the absence of self-determination. I want you to keep that in mind. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, the Roman letter is not the oldest of Paul's epistle, but it is the first one we encounter in the New Testament, and that's important. 
because at the very beginning of this, the first letter that we come to in the King James, we see Paul identifying himself just as one would in any other personal letter or personal communication. But he takes that identification one step further, but not by not only introducing himself, but identifying himself. And we see that he, in identifying himself, actually defines himself. And he does so by saying that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. No scripture is of private interpretation. Remember that. Meaning, all scripture applies to you in one way or another. The Greek word in Romans 1.1 that gets translated into the English word servant the Greek word is doulos. Now, all of the major biblical translations, the major English translations of the Bible, use the word servant there. And I, this is reviewed to many of you. I think that hardly does justice to the Greek word. But most disappointing is the fact that it does absolutely no justice to what Paul was trying to communicate. Now, the New Life Translation, a relatively obscure version of the Bible, gets closest in my estimation, in my opinion. And it renders this verse, This letter is from Paul. I am a servant owned by Jesus Christ. Now, the New Life Translation of the, the Bible, the New Life English Translation, uses the word owned, and that helps. Everywhere else, everywhere else, uses the word servant. At least the New Life Translation uses the word owned servant. And as I said, that helps. Paul was an owned servant. That gives a more accurate picture of what Paul needed to say. My notes say wanted to say, but I'm going to say Paul needed you to know what it looks like in the service of Christ. The word doulos, when Paul wrote it, would and should today be translated slave. That was his word choice, because Paul wasn't just a servant of Christ, as we define that word today. He was a servant owned by Christ, and an owned servant is a slave. When one person owns another person, servant or not, that's slavery. Paul was defining himself as a slave. The King James and almost all other English versions of the Bible, even the most recent editions, use the word servant in place of the word doulos. Now, I'm willing to concede that the word servant 
most probably was the best one to use at the time of the writing of the King James. But it fails today. And our modern versions have not made the proper corrections. And this has had the effect of minimizing, if not outright altering, Paul's opening statement to the Romans in his letter to them. Why is this a big deal? Because Paul was a slave and so are you. So, to mitigate or even correct confusion and the damage that confusion might do, let's closely examine this. Let's spend some time looking at what Paul actually meant. Paul, a doulos of Jesus Christ. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not easy to communicate this, but this is a remarkable statement. One I'm sure we don't fully appreciate. First of all, this man, Paul, was considered a man of high status in the society in which he lived. He was a well-trained religious expert. And frankly, someone who was considered, uh, considered a member of an elite society, he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were an elite society. And yet, he identified himself as a slave. Now, that's just part of what makes this incredible. This high status, well re listen, no matter how big and important you think you are, I don't think it matches how big and important Paul was. When he identified himself as Saul prior to his conversion, he was given the very important task of eliminating Christianity from the Jewish religion. That was an all-encompassing task, and he was in charge of that. You don't just hand that over to anybody. Remember, this was mere, probably less than three years after Jesus had been crucified, and the Jewish leaderships pulled out all the stops to eliminate him. They went straight to the top. They went straight to the top Roman authority in order to accomplish what they needed to, be, to have accomplished, and that failed. It failed to stop the spread of Christianity, so they had to find someone even more powerful. And they chose Paul. I'm just trying to get you an idea of the kind of guy he actually was. So that you can see the remarkable statement. Paul, a doulos of Jesus Christ. A slave. And if we do a little research, we can see that's exactly what he was. As I tell you repeatedly, the, pr the problem with translating from 
Greek to English is that so much meaning gets lost in the process. When one uses a Greek word, one has decided to be precise. When you use a Greek word, you listen, Paul didn't have to use Greek words. He spoke Aramaic as well and, and Hebrew. But he decided to use Greek because of its precision. Paul wanted to be precise, and he chose the word doulos intentionally. Because we can be certain and we know that there are several other words that Paul could have used instead of doulos if his intention was not to portray himself as a slave, but merely a servant. If he wanted to show himself as less than a piece of property to his master Jesus Christ, he could have used the word pahis as an example. Pahis is a word that's found in Scripture that Paul could have used. And it means, well, we'll get into it in a second. Strong's Greek Dictionary designates pahis, G for Greece, Three eight or Greek G for Greek three eight one six. Pahis literally translates to child, but when you use the word pahis, you're using it to to denote an inferior, servile role. Now you can see the connection between that and child if you think once again, unfortunately our own, in this country, our own legacy of racial inequality. Don't we very often hear someone called boy in an attempt to demean that person? In an attempt to communicate to that person that we feel that they occupy a lower valued social strata than ourselves? That's pahis. That's how people would use the word pahis in the Greek culture. Yes, someone of a lower labor status, and Paul could have used that if all he wanted you to know was that he was a, of a lower status, but that wasn't low enough for him. As low as a pahis was, there's something lower, a doulos. Paul didn't use the word pahis and could have. It wasn't precise enough for him. He could have used diakonos. Diakonos is a commonly used word in the Greek language to denote a servant-type person. Perhaps you've heard the term deacon. That title deacon comes from this word diakonos. Diakonos is derived from the Greek verb diakaneo, which has as its basic meaning to wait at table. A low position. Somebody that stands there waiting for you to wave them, to snap your finger at them, to fill your glass of water, bring you more bread. To serve you at your table. That's why deacon comes from diakonos. It's serving at the table in reference to, most likely, the table of the Lord. It means to care for, to serve. 
Now, it's true that in other places, Paul does refer to himself using the term diakonos. But in those instances, it's my opinion that he's referring to his servile role as a minister for the people, in a sense that he's serving the people by bringing them the truth of the gospel through his work and teaching. So he refers to himself as a diakonos for you and I, a deacon for you and I. That's how he saw his role for you and I, not his role for Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ, he was a doulos. So Paul chose the word doulos because he didn't want you to think he was just a diakonos of Jesus Christ. As low as a diakonos is, there's something lower. A slave, a doulos. And then Paul could have used the word oikites if he wanted you to think he was just an oikites. An oikites is a household servant, what we might call a domestic. If you saw Downton Abbey, if you're a Downton Abbey fan, I wasn't, but my wife was. The people that lived, I guess it was downstairs, would be the servants. Yes, a very low social status, very little hope for joy in life, but they weren't a doulos. A little lower in society, but they were compensated. And who, frankly, they were free to come and go as they please. That's not a description of a doulos nor our equivalent, a slave. Paul didn't say he was an oikites. That would have been bad enough for a guy like Paul. No, no, Paul, Paul, you're, you're a well-respected teacher. You're a Pharisee. You're not an oikites. You're right, I'm not an oikites. I'm a doulos. That's how he approached his role with Christ. I'm just, I'm just so tired this morning. I'm not going to go to church. I don't really feel like it. I know preachers that take Sundays off because they don't feel like it. That's not being a slave. How you feel has nothing to do with it. Those slave masters didn't say, uh, Joe, slave, how do you feel this morning? you mind going out and harvesting a little wheat for me? I, I don't know. Not really feeling wheat today. A doulos has no I feel like, has no rights. And that's how Paul precisely identified himself. Our example, Paul was a slave. He meant to introduce himself as a slave. The evidence is clear. Let's not be misled 
when we hear our English word servant at Romans 1.1 and elsewhere. So then next the question is, well, why did Paul choose the word with all of its ugly connotation then and now? By the way, if you've ever wondered where the English word slave came from, interestingly, it comes from the word Slavic, as in Slavic people. You talk about unfortunate. This word slave became associated with the Slavic people because they were, they were repeatedly pressed into forced labor as a result of being constantly being on the wrong end of the numerous back-and-forth wars through the Middle Ages. Pressed into service, Slavic slave, that's where the word comes from. Well, regardless of that, why did Paul want to be associated or thought of or characterized or defined as a slave? Well, I suppose you could say, well, maybe Paul was just using a common religious motif to describe how he felt it was common in the Old Testament to say, well, I, I, I'm a slave to Christ. Slave to the rhythm. You ever remember that? Grace Jones wasn't really a slave. She just really liked it. Maybe that's what Paul was doing. It was just, it was imagery. He, he was just trying to be symbolic. Certainly the Jews would have appreciated that. They were familiar with this idea of, quote, slavery to God, Deuteronomy 3, 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. So again, we have the word servant being used, but it's translating the Hebrew word ebed. And ebed means slave. So Moses, the slave of the Lord. This verse is, should be translated, Moses, the slave of the Lord. And I don't think Moses would have argued much about that. It was common for the prophets and other men of God to be referred to in this way in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 25, 4, And the Lord hath set, sent unto you all his servants. Again, the word is ebed. And the Lord hath sent unto you all his ebed, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened nor inclined your ear to hear. We even see this sort of language in the Messianic passages from the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 11, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous ebed, my righteous servant, justify many. I, in Isaiah, here, God is referring to the coming Messiah, interestingly, as his slave, which is a completely separate topic, but it is interesting and it illustrates the point. So it is, I suppose, possible that Paul could have just been sort of being a really good rabbi and using established religious motif. But we should probably look at this with a little bit of skepticism because, you see, Paul was writing— this letter is called the letter to the Romans. Is Paul using 
a Jewish religious concept in a letter meant for a culturally Greek audience. Remember, there were technically two types of Jews at that time. There were the Jews in Jerusalem, and then there were the Jews of the, quote, diaspora. Now, the diaspora was just those that were outside of Jerusalem, and they were very often very culturally different. Though they worshipped in similar ways, they were culturally different. And this was an obviously culturally different group that Paul was speaking to. They had a Greek cultural mindset. Remember, verse 7 says, to all that be in Rome. You got to keep in mind, despite Paul's personal heritage, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And if he was going to try and appeal to his constituency with strictly Jewish religious concepts, he was going to fail. And we know that didn't happen. So Paul wasn't just attempting to use some sort of religious imagery that only culturally Jewish, Jerusalem Jewish people would get. He wasn't going down that road, quote unquote. That wasn't why he used the word doulos. He used the word doulos outside of the normal Jewish religious concepts. We know that because he wasn't speaking to culturally Jewish people. It would have had no effect. So he must have meant it when he said he was a doulos. He wasn't just being religiously imaginative as is too often common in the religious world, even to our day. The intended recipients of the letter were Roman citizens, at least Roman residents familiar with Roman civilization. And this makes Paul's statement of being a doulos very puzzling. And if you look at it on the face of it, sort of counterproductive. You see, the Romans adopted Greek culture in large measure. And so to the Greeks and to the Romans, slavery was very common, but it was disgraceful. It was, in fact, unnatural for someone of high status such as Paul. In Romans, as well as other letters, Paul was writing to people that considered him their leader. They identified him as their leader. You see, because the letters that Paul was writing, he was writing to churches he had either started or was directly involved in starting or even supporting administratively. But here, as their leader, he was identifying himself in the disgraceful way as a slave. This must have shocked them. Certainly it embarrassed them and maybe even disgusted them to hear him say that. To their mindset, freedom was paramount. 
being able to do whatever you want was paramount. I've achieved this status in life. I'm above the scum down there. I can do what I want. I mean, these are people that arguably invented democracy, at least institutionalized it. Now, I want you to be clear. Slavery existed in Paul's day. As a matter of fact, slavery was very important to the social fabric of the day. Paul knew that. And remember what I said a moment ago? He precisely chose that word, slave, or its Greek counterpart, doulos. Let's look this at this in another way. You know, one of the hallmarks of the life of Jesus was his rather entertaining penchant for turning things upside down. He would say things like, if you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to go up, you must go down. If you want to live, you must die. You know, one of my favorite sayings found in Scripture came from the mouth of Peter when he said in Acts, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. I perceive that also. The one thing that comes out again and again when we study the life of Jesus is that he could not have cared less about what we care about the most. Our concepts of self-importance and status and position in life are completely foreign to God. And Jesus constantly made that clear. But this was not an easy sell, even among his closest friends. Remember the time that Jesus decided to demonstrate the value of service to others? He got pushback from his closest friend. Let's read John 13, 4. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. The Bible never ceases to amaze me. When I stop and I think about scenes like this, this was the Last Supper. That's what we call the Last Supper. This was the near the end of Jesus' life. He had been with all of these men for three years now, at least. And yet it seems that they simply still didn't get it. That's obvious because his actions here actually caused a bit of a kerfuffle. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Peter was shocked. Jesus was turning everything upside down. Peter was basically saying, what do you think you're doing? And then, and I mean this, this is how shocked Peter was. He said something 
he should never have said. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. You see, the world had made such an impression on Peter that he just couldn't grasp the concept of ministering to another of seemingly lower rank. That was just inconceivable to him. But not to Jesus. And not to Paul. Jesus was giving us an example of what the kingdom of God was like. Jesus was demonstrating how far God was willing to go in order to get his children back. Jesus, by stooping down to minister to the needs of his friend, was showing the true nature and true mission of a son of God. In order for you to be an effective son of God in God's current mission, you must stoop down as if you were some sort of slave. How do you know? Jesus showed me. Paul showed me. All Paul was doing in that Roman letter, Romans letter and elsewhere, was continuing this theme. He was propagating this theme. He was carrying it now out to the world. Jesus, according to Paul, calls us to minister, to serve, to slave. And just like it was nearly impossible for Peter to digest. It was just as difficult for society at large to accept it in Paul's day. You see, in the predominant Greek mindset, the mindset, again, remember, Alexander the Great did a terrific job in, quote, Hellenizing the world. Most of the Western world, the world that Paul was now addressing, with the message of Christ was a Greek mindset. And they thought service to others was undignified. The ideal in the Greek mindset was a promotion of individual personal development. Seems like not much has changed. I've met over the years lots of people that claim to be Christians. A lot of them are very good at quoting scripture and never missing a Sunday and always being even big givers, church board members. But I must tell you, very few of them look like slaves. Very few of them would call themselves slaves. I've never heard anyone say, hi, I'm Mary, I'm a due loss of Jesus Christ. Hi, I'm Mary. I'm in charge of the welcoming committee. And there over there is John, and he's in charge of the finder seat committee. And over there is Joe, and he's in charge of the music as you're going to the seat. Everybody's in charge in church. Everyone's in charge of something. I do hear a lot of people quote the Abundant Life verse. I don't hear anyone quoting the Do Loss of Jesus Christ verse. They say, 
that Christ came to give us life and that more abundantly. I hear that a lot. But I don't hear anyone talking about service. I don't hear anyone stooping down to wash anyone's feet. I hear a lot of people say, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold. A lot of people will quote that, but they they whisper the left word, the word that says left house. But they'll they'll proclaim the receive part. They're very quiet about left. But they'll say received. I hear a lot of people quote the book of Daniel. And the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. They like to talk about receiving a kingdom. But they don't like talking about washing feet. We want the greatness of the kingdom, but we don't want to serve and obey. Catherine and I are trying to build something for Christ. We hear from people all the time, we love your teaching. We love your programs. It makes me feel good. But that's as far as it goes. We're not here to make you feel good. We're not here to entertain you. We're here to teach you. But there's even more to it than that. We're here to pass along the inspiration of Scripture so that you can pass along to others or help us to pass it along. Yeah, we want you blessed, but we also want you broken. We want to see you driven to your knees to serve. Tell me how you can wash someone's feet without going to your knees. Like Paul, we're trying to destroy the idea that somehow being a Christian means you sit back and let God do all the work. Like Paul, we're slaves. And if you're not a slave, you're not a Christian. If you're not willing to take on the cloak of a slave, don't even bother going to church. Don't bother. Don't bother turning into this program. You're a slave. But is that so terrible? Is it really demeaning? Now, we have to be very careful in our times because of the great sensitivity, the well-deserved sensitivity of the subject. But is slavery really something that's only to be reviled? Is it all loss and no gain? As we move on in this lesson, I want you to shift your focus from viewing slavery only in the worldview and neglecting the spiritual view. I want you to see it the way God sees it. Because let me tell you, Christ never forces anyone into anything, let alone slave status. And that's the difference. The Africans 
had no choice. They were pressed into slavery. You have a choice. Christ is not going to press you into service. He's not going to press you into slavery. If you become a slave to Christ, you have to ask to be one. Isn't that amazing? He isn't going to make you a slave. You have to choose it. That choice of being a slave in God's eyes elevates you above kings. I always remember when I told my friend Leslie Hale that I was going to start this ministry. He said, thank God you didn't stoop to be a king. But why would anyone want to volunteer to be a slave? Well, in reality, in ancient times, even around the time of the Romans' letter, that was not at all uncommon. It was not uncommon for people to enslave themselves to someone voluntarily. But why? Why would you give up your will for the will of another? Because remember, that's what slavery is. You give up your own will. Why would I give up my will to be a slave? Well, first and foremost, your master is Jesus. The altogether altogether lovely, the prince of peace, the fairest of 10,000. This isn't an evil overlord. This isn't a yard boss. Your master is Jesus. Slavery to him won't feel like it. He's a good master. He shows all the qualities of a good master. First of all, good masters feed their slaves. John 6 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Good masters feed their slaves. Good masters shelter their slaves. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or how about John 14, 2? In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, slave, because I'm a good master. A good master protects his slaves. Isaiah 25, 4, For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. A good master protects his slaves. Psalm 121 3 through 8. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. 
Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The, this is a king who wrote, this is a king who wrote this psalm. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, that keepeth he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun will shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. This is a beautiful picture of a good master. You see the English word keepeth there in that psalm. In the Hebrew, it's shamar. Strong's Hebrew dictionary has a very lovely definition for this word. It says that shamar is a primitive root word which actually means to, listen to this, to hedge about as with thorns. Isn't that isn't that a beautiful thought? Our slave quarters are hedges. Our good master has built a hedge around us for protection. He's not trying to keep us in. If it was an ugly fence, that would be keeping us in. He's keeping the world out. And in the meantime, it's something pleasant to look at. It's a hedge. It's not a concrete wall. No barbed wire. It's a living, breathing, natural head surrounding us. Yeah, there's some thorns there, but it's not for you and me. It's for those overconfident, pesky invaders on the outside. He's keeping them out. God is hedging us about with a lovely perimeter, no razor wire, no chain link fence, no menacing fortress wall. It's a hedge. Nothing to worry about. Nice and pleasant protection. It's a picture of your master, isn't it? Your master is sweet and comforting and strong and pleasant. It's an advantage of being a slave to a good master. Don't recoil from the word slave. Don't be repulsed at the concept of slavery to Christ. There's a good head surrounding you. Not to keep you in, but to keep the bad out. You've got work to do. He's protecting you while you perform the work. And that's not a revolutionary idea, by the way. Despite what we think of it today, slavery, even in Paul's day, was actually a legal status that afforded potential significant advantages. Times were different then. Slavery was actually, at times, a vehicle for social mobility. Paul knew that. Paul wasn't saying this is going to be gloomy and doomy for you. There are some advantages. 
you could actually ascend the social ladder as a slave. As being someone else's property, you could actually move up. That's what history tells us. In ancient Greece and Rome, in fact, it wasn't as important that you were a slave as who you were a slave to. Bob Dylan has a song that quite rightly declares, you got to serve somebody. Being attached to the right master was very often quite beneficial. I mean, certain well-placed slaves, history tells us, could have, those slaves could have access to influence and power and respect. And in some cases, slaves were rather wealthy. Much wealthier, in fact, than a large portion of the rest of the free citizenry. In fact, it was not unusual at all for people to purposely volunteer to become a slave to a good master in order to improve their lot in life, and Paul knew that. When you became a slave, it didn't mean a life of destitution and obscurity. That wouldn't have brought anyone aboard. And you should look at it that way as well. Look, the truth actually is, for you and I, being a slave isn't really the choice. The choice is, who will be my master? I think, now make, make this clear, this is my opinion, but I think the Bible makes it clear Either you belong to God or you belong to the devil and there isn't any middle ground. There isn't some other third thing. That's just a deception of the devil. Something he's been spreading since the garden. God said to Adam and Eve, obey and die. And the devil tried to convince them that there was actually a third thing. He told them that God wasn't telling the whole story and we fools have been believing that ever since. Whether you like it or not, the choice isn't slavery versus freedom. The choice is life or death. you got to serve somebody. Let me say it as gently as I can. You must choose wisely. First of all, we're blessed to be allowed to choose. The angels were not given the choice to choose. They serve because that's their nature. And if you do choose wisely, your blessings could become manifold. Choose the right master. Choose the master that will be a benefit to you, not because of the benefits, but because it's the right choice, the wise choice. And by the way, when you do make that right choice, something very cool happens. You see, once you volunteer to be a slave of Christ, a transformation occurs. Although your legal status is that of a slave, get this, it makes me laugh. The one person 
who has a right to call you slave decides to call you something else. John 15, 15, Henceforth I call you not servants. That word is doulos. Henceforth I call you not doulos. For the doulos, that doesn't mean you're not, get that straight. Just because he chooses not to call you a slave doesn't mean you aren't a slave. He just chooses not to because he loves you. Henceforth I call you not doulos. For the doulos knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard of my Father, I've made known unto you. Despite you being one, he won't call you his slave. He expects you to be a slave, but in exchange, he treats you as a friend. Not a bad choice, don't you think? You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.